Hi, and welcome to the Radius Church Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're interested in finding out more information about Radius Church, please check us out on our website, radiuschurch.tv. How's everybody doing? Well, I'm going to just jump right into this thing because uh, I got a lot to get to you, and so we're just going to hit it. So I hope you guys are ready because I am ready, and uh, let's do this thing. So how, how do I sound? Am I a little high, a little soft? Am I good? Do I sound good out there? Okay. All right. Good deal. So let's jump right into it. So um, I want to talk to you tonight about what I'm just simply calling the problem of pain. And uh, we've been doing these discipleship classes for a little while now, and uh, my dad and I have been um, kind of strategizing. And actually, hey, can you hit the record on that camera? I think I may have forgotten to. I want to make sure we get this. Okay. Um, and so my dad and I have been strategizing about uh, discipleship, and we wanted to do some uh, apologetic-style teachings. Now, if you don't know what apologetics are, it is basically a defense of the faith. Uh, Christianity makes claims, makes truth claims. What sort of evidence basis do we have for those claims? And so um, a lot of it has to do with um, just, you know, obviously defending the faith and looking at uh, arguments for the existence of God and and things like that. And so um, a lot of it has to do with sort of defending uh, difficult criticisms and questions that people have with Christian belief and things like that. And one of the, the biggest one is the problem of pain. And you have probably heard it. It is usually something along the lines of, if God is so good and loving and powerful, why in the world is there so much pain and evil and suffering in the world? How can we reconcile those two things? Um, Oftentimes it is kind of formulated as an argument uh, against God, against the existence of God, or at least the Christian understanding of God. It is uh, sometimes called the argument from evil, and it, it sometimes is kind of packaged like, well, God may be good, but he's not powerful. He may desire to end evil, but he, he doesn't, so he's not powerful to do it. Or he may be powerful and have the ability to, but he chooses not to, and therefore he isn't good. And so that's kind of the argument from evil. So either way, there's good, powerful God, and, and the existence of evil and the pain and suffering can't coexist. And so... That is what we are going to get into tonight. So I have, um, there's kind of two kind of main parts to my, my teaching tonight. First, I want to get into what's kind of a typical sort of apologetics approach and, and give you, I guess, sort of some, um, sort of a defense about how we can kind of counter that sort of question and that sort of argument. And then I also want to do, uh, I want to kind of transition into sort of a Bible study. And I want to look at what does the Bible tell us about the problem of pain. And um, it, it may be a little bit different than kind of a traditional apologetics approach, but I think some of the best apologetics is just to simply learn and understand the Bible better. And so we're going to look at apologetics approach with, a, with some Bible study mixed in. And uh, we're going to look at the book of Job tonight because I figured, why not? We're talking about pain and suffering. It seems like a pretty appropriate place to go. Uh, we all know Job went through it, and so what does the book of Job have to say about the problem of pain? So that's what we're going to do. You guys ready to go? Yeah. All right, let's do this. So, okay, uh, the first thing I want to talk to you about is what is called the free will defense, and this is developed by a guy by the name of Alvin Plantinga, and he is a Christian philosopher. He is um, pretty well known in kind of the apologetics arena. He um, has written a lot of work on the problem of pain and, and things like that, and he's developed this thing called the free will defense. He was, for many years, he's retired now, but for many years was the professor of philosophy at Notre Dame University. And this is his defense about trying to make a case that the all good, powerful God can coexist with the evil in the world today. And so his claim is that God is good and powerful, but he can't do something that is logically incoherent. And what that means is, think of it like this, God can't make a round square, or God can't make a rock so big that he himself can't lift it. You can't just get rid of nonsense by injecting God into it. It still doesn't make any sense, right? And so he kind of argues that in having a world where human beings have free will, the ability to choose, uh, God can't guarantee that the people with free will will always do the right thing and will always choose to do the right thing. Um, He says that it is logically incoherent for there to be free will and also um, no evil in, in, in the world today. 
uh, he said, he kind of, kind of asked some questions along in this free will defense that, is it possible that the world God created where people have free will, even with evil, that that is still more valuable than a world without free will and no evil? Maybe that it is. Maybe that free will and our ability to choose is more valuable than a world without free will, even without all the pain and suffering that comes with it. And so it's kind of like, okay, what would you rather have? No pain or would you rather have free will? Um, you know? So it seems that God has prioritized free will with kind of the highest value. Um, that if God is love, and obviously that's what Christians believe, that true love only exists if it is freely chosen and freely given. And so you can't have love. Um, you know, we, we obviously would desire a world without evil and without pain and suffering because it's, you know, terrible to go through those things. And if you eliminated free will, it, you, you know, on one hand, you'd be like, okay, great, there's no pain and suffering. But then you would also lose all the good things as well. Um, you'd lose true love. You'd lose joy and happiness and kindness and generosity and, and, and laughter and things like that. I mean, imagine a world without, like, true joy and laughter. I mean, what makes laughter so valuable is because we understand the tears. We know the spectrum of, of those feelings and emotions, right? And the reality is, is that the thing that makes us human is simply our ability to choose. And if you remove that, you remove what makes us human. Uh, the only way you can call something good or bad is because we have the choice to do good or bad. I like what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain. I kind of stole his title, if I can admit that. Uh, he said this, Try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you find that you have excluded life itself. That pretty much sums it up pretty good right there, I think. Um, Okay, so there's a little bit of philosophy, something to kind of get your, get your brain moving a little bit. I want to talk to you about, uh, I want to give you a thought experiment. And this is a question to, again, just kind of get, get your mind going, something to think about. And this is a thought experiment developed by this guy by the name of Robert Nozick. He is also a philosopher. And he, he came up with something called the experience machine thought experiment. Okay, and it's just this question. Would you plug into a machine that would bring you ultimate pleasure for the rest of your life? The only catch is that you have to permanently leave reality behind. So if you kind of think about, if, if, if you've seen the movie The Matrix, okay, you kind of understand that, you know, they're living in this reality, it seems real, but it's not the actual real world. So in other words, you would experience life like normal, but no matter what happened to you, you would only feel pleasure. Would you choose a life of limitless pleasure, but with the reality of knowing you actually left the real world behind? Now, we can only answer that question ourselves as individuals, and there would probably be some people who would plug in. Maybe it would be tempting to say, yeah, I'd plug in for a week or two or a month or two, right? Um, but for forever, for the rest of your life, that's something I couldn't do. And if you, too, would say, no, I wouldn't plug in, then you kind of have to ask yourself questions. Well, then, is all pain bad? Or is, uh, is there value to pain? Uh, is there a value in knowing the truth, even if it hurts? Is that more valuable than just being blissfully ignorant, right? So seemingly, if you wouldn't plug into the experience machine, maybe there's some value even with the pain. Um, so, obviously, we have a desire to end pain, but I think if you don't plug in, we, it would show that you have a greater desire to just be human and take the truth for what it is. Um, above all, we would choose to keep our humanity, even if it means choosing that pain. Now, it's obvious that pain can weaken faith, but I think it can also strengthen it, and we have the ability to choose how to respond. And if you were here this past Sunday, Mark talked about that, that uh, you do have the ability to choose. Um, so now I want to kind of shift into our, our Bible study and look at the book of Job. And I'm going to spend the majority of my time here because I have spent the last probably six weeks to two months really getting deep into the book of Job and studying this book. And oh my goodness, there is a lot there. It is just an incredible book, just so much wisdom and depth. And I've just got a lot to say to you guys and so uh, let's, let's just get into this. So um, 
through the book of Job, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to talk about our response. And I'm going to give you a list of five ways that we could respond when we are going through the trials and tribulations of life, the pain and suffering of life ourselves. And the first three, I'm going to say, are not the correct way, and the last two are what I think we should, should focus on and, and strive towards. So, but before we do that, let me kind of, uh, kind of give you some background. We'll kind of set the scene, give you some context to the book of Job, and uh, set up a few things, and then we'll dig into our response. So, the book of Job, I would imagine we're all at least somewhat familiar with it, but it is, obviously in the Old Testament, it is what is known as Old Testament wisdom literature, and it kind of gets paired with Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. It's kind of along those lines, and it has an interesting structure in that the first two chapters and the very last chapter are written as a narrative story, and then the middle 39 chapters are, it's 42 chapters long, the middle chunk of it is all poetry, and it's really just this poetic dialogue and monologue between Job and his friends back and forth until at the end God finally shows up and has a few things to say, uh, to, to put it, yeah, to, to put it lightly. He's got a few things to say, right? Okay. Um, it, Job is kind of interesting, too. It is, it is the only book in the Bible, or at least for sure in the Old Testament, where none of the characters are Israelites. Job and none of his friends are Israelites, so it's kind of just uh, just something interesting about the book. So we're we're introduced to Job right from the get-go, and we, and we learn right off the bat that he is righteous and blameless and upright in the eyes of God, and he has done absolutely nothing to deserve what is getting ready to happen to him. He, it, I mean, you guys probably know he loses all of his possessions, his entire family dies, and he is stricken with this illness and sickness where his body is covered in these painful boils. I mean, it's, it's just, it's literally the worst, okay? I mean, I can't, I can't imagine it would get any worse for somebody. And, and so we're introduced to Job. He's this righteous guy. And then just a few verses into the first chapter, we kind of immediately change gears. We change settings, and we are kind of put into what can only be described as kind of heaven's boardroom, Okay. And God is there, and all the, you know, angels and angelic beings are there, and somebody else shows up, Satan shows up. And Satan, in the original Hebrew, see, we might think of Satan as a name, but Satan is actually a title. And in the original Hebrew, it is the name, or it's, he's called Ha-Satan, which is the Satan. And Satan, in Hebrew, means uh, the accuser, or the adversary. He is the opponent. And Sometimes we kind of get these ideas to picture Satan like, you know, he's this ugly demon, red demon guy with horns and a pitchfork and stuff like that. But kind of a better way to look at him is he's kind of just like a prosecuting attorney. He is there to be the adversary and the opponent. And he shows up and he asks God a question. And in verse number nine of the very first chapter, the Satan asks God, does Job fear God for nothing? And that is, that is a loaded question, let me tell you. Um, when, when we can start kind of pulling apart what that question involves, we kind of start understanding what the book of Job is about. Um, I, I tried to think of how to say this any better, but it, it, it might sound weird to say, but it's like we, we kind of learn something from Satan almost. At least we learn something from the question. The question can teach us something really important. And so, does Job fear God for nothing? And we're going to come back to that as we go through these responses. But the Bible, at least for me, the more I've read and studied the Bible, the Bible is really good at subverting our expectations. And if we come to the book of Job with the expectation that we are going to get an answer to the question, why does God allow bad things to happen or why do bad things happen to good people, uh, I will just let you know right now that you will be frustrated and upset because we do not get an answer to that question. And if that's why you came tonight, I'm sorry, but spoiler alert, I don't have the answer tonight. Um, and the book of Job doesn't tell us why. Um, and so what it does do, though, is something interesting, and it gets us to maybe reconsider the question. Um, and through this question, it, it doesn't give us the answer to why do bad things happen to good people, but what it does is it almost flips that question upside down and it asks, why is it that good people and righteous people should prosper? 
Now, you might be thinking, whoa, 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 hang on, Jake. Well, what do you mean? But of course good people should prosper, right? You do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad. Like, isn't that how it's supposed to work? We'll see. We'll see. Okay. So, Satan asks, does Job fear God for nothing? And really what he's getting at is the motivation. Is he only doing this because of the blessings? What is his motivation for being righteous and for being obedient? And is it possible that blessing righteous people will corrupt their motives? And if they're only doing these things for the blessings, uh, for selfish reasons, are they really righteous at all? And so really the book of Job is kind of exploring, uh, it's more about God than it is about Job, and it's, it's really kind of about God's policies and, and sort of how he runs the world. And uh, so... With that being said, let's get into our response. So, as I said, five ways we could respond. The first three, I would say, let's avoid that. And the last two, I would say, let's shoot for those. So, the first way we could respond is we could respond by abandoning belief in God. And this is basically what I see from Job's wife. In, in Job chapter 2, verse 9, she just tells him, curse God and die. Uh, typically, guys, I would say it'd probably be wise to follow your wife's advice, but in this case, uh, I would advise against it, okay? So, um, okay, now we have, we have established that uh, pain and evil and suffering is a problem. It's, it's the problem of pain, right? It's a very difficult problem, and it's very difficult to know how to go about providing an answer to those questions. But I think it's an even bigger problem for people who respond this way, and here's why. Um, there is a famous Russian author, and I've come across this, this quote from one of his books many times. His name is, uh, I'll probably butcher it, but I'll try, Fyodor Dostoevsky, okay? He happens to be a Christian, and I think he really understood the implications of abandoning belief in God. And he said, if there is no God, then everything is permitted. And I want you to think about what that means, that if God is eliminated and you say you abandon your belief in God, you lose your absolute moral framework. You lose the ability to say that this is absolutely right and absolutely wrong. Morality at that point becomes nothing more than just people's personal opinions and people's own feelings, and it's just my word against your word, and you think this, and I feel that, and that's all you're left with. And if there is no moral absolutes, you know, what basis do you have for trying to make the world a better place? What basis do you have, you know, to, to fight for things like equality and justice and, and, and the good things in the world? And uh, you lose that. It's just, again, my opinion against your opinion. And um, you can't respond that way. Uh, when you lose those things, again, you, you lose the basis for your moral framework. So we can't respond that way. So let's look at the next way. And these next two, we kind of really get into the meat of what the book of Job is all about, and there's a lot there. So uh, if, I, if I say things fast and you don't get a chance to write it all down, we are recording this, so you can rewind and pause and play back if you need to, but let's get into it. So the second way we could respond is by defending ourselves because we think that God is punishing us. And this is the response I see out of Job's friends. And Job's friends, they view Job as the defense in a criminal trial. They think, they think that Job did something wrong, that he has sinned, and so God is justly punishing him for his sins. And sad to say, I think that there are Christians today who still kind of respond this way, like Job's friends, that, that they think that they are on trial and that God is punishing them. But let me say this, just because you are going through a trial, just because you are in a trial does not mean that you are on trial. You are not on trial. And the reason why Job's friends responded this way is because they believed in something that is called the retribution principle. And the retribution principle, I kind of alluded to it just a few minutes ago, is simply this. If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. If you obey God, you will be blessed. If you disobey God, you will be punished. And they believe that this is this is the way that God has ordered and structured the world, and he is running things strictly adhering to this principle. So um, let's, uh, let's look at it in Job chapter 4, uh, verses 7 and 8. This is his friend Eliphaz. He says, Think now, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? 
As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. I mean, there it, it pretty much is. I mean, you reap what you sow, Job. And the reason why all this terrible, horrible, bad stuff is happening to you is because you must have sowed something bad, so you're just reaping the bad stuff that comes with it. Um, if you kind of read between the lines there in verse number 7, when he says, who that was innocent ever perished, Job just lost his entire family. So he's basically claiming that God punished them by killing them for sins that they had in his life. And he's saying, Job, that's why your entire family died. That's pretty harsh. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about you, but them's fighting words to me. I mean, we're, we're going to take this outside, right? Like, I mean, that's, I mean, that's brutal. Um, but that's, that's what they're saying. And, and what ends up happening here is Job's friends, they, they basically try to convince him to just do whatever he can to, to get his blessings back, to, to recover favor with God. Job, you, you know, they start telling him to like, you know, repent to stuff, even if you didn't do it, just do whatever you got to do to get your stuff back, Job, because I mean, this is terrible, right? You're going through this horrible stuff. So just do whatever you got to do to get your blessings back. And it's through their response, we start understanding a little bit more about what the book of Job is doing. Now, what it is doing is this. The book of Job is making three main claims about either God or Job. And these are the three claims. Number one is that God is just and good. The second claim is of the retribution principle and that this is exactly how God runs the world. And the third claim is of Job's innocence. Now, when we look at those three claims and we relate it to the friends, they believe that one is true and two is true, which is why they start questioning number three. So the reality of these is that only two of these can be true at the same time. If they're all three true, they contradict. And so the friends say, God is just and good. He runs the world according to the retribution principle. And so Job, like, come on, dude, there's no way you're innocent because innocent people don't suffer like this, man. Stop lying. Just admit what you did already. And so, um, and it, they just, they continue to double down. I mean, it's just over and over, friend after friend. It, it just kind of goes through the cycle of their, you know, the friends responding and then Job answering. And they basically just call Job a liar they're so convinced and they're so certain of these two things, namely their theology of the retribution principle that it's just basically this sort of transactional theology. They just keep shoving it down his throat. And it's like, it's like guys, couldn't you just be a little more sympathetic and understanding? It's like your, God, your friend here is going through unimaginable tragedy. It's like, how about just like, you know, putting your arm around him, lending him a shoulder to cry on, like, uh, but they're just preaching at him. And they're, I mean, basically, they're prioritizing their theology over their relationship and friendship with Job, and they just ram it down his throat. And um, they just, really, they're bringing shame and condemnation onto their friend. And we, we see this, that uh, their motivation is to just tell him to repent and pray, Job. Um, do whatever you have to do to get your stuff back. And I, f I feel like sometimes we still see this in church today, right? Somebody's going through something and it just, well, you know, uh, make sure, you know, how's your church attendance been? Did you, did you pray more? Is there sin in your life? You know, make sure you're reading your Bible more and all that stuff. Um, and, and we can read about it in Job chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. Uh, his, his friend Zophar says this, and he's just advising him, Job, just repent and pray, right? If you direct your heart rightly, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and do not let wickedness reside in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish, and you will be secure, and you will not fear. So Job, stop lying and just admit what you did already. Then you can reestablish favor with God. Some of the verses after that, he's basically telling Job, like, you know, you'll finally have, you'll finally be at rest. You'll be able to restore hope again. And... Do whatever you got to do, Job, to get your stuff back. And here's the problem with that. If Job follows Zophar's advice or his friend's advice, um, the, the motivation behind the friend's advice is the same motivation be behind the Satan's question. Think about that. Okay. Does Job fear God for nothing? Is he only doing this because of the stuff? See, if Job follows his friend's advice, which, by the way, he never does, he maintains his innocence all the way till the very end, but if he was to follow their advice, he would prove Satan right. 
um, I'm not really righteous. I'm just doing this because of the stuff and because of what I get out of it. So to conclude this point, um, let me be absolutely clear. When you are going through whatever it is that you're going through, God is not punishing you. I don't care what anybody tells you. It's not about what you do and don't do. It's not about what sin you may or may not have. It, if, if all this was based on your performance and, and you just had to, to do more and perform better to earn the blessings of God, it would prove Satan right. And in case you didn't know, Satan isn't right. Okay. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's just, it's just, I don't know. I just think that that is so powerful. Um, it's not about your performance. Okay. So let's go to number three. The third way we could respond is by becoming bitter and resentful and cynical and malicious. Uh, pick whatever word you like better. I just threw a bunch of them in there to really kind of drive the point home, okay? But this is, this is Job's response. Uh, not right, right at the beginning, but we get a few chapters into the book and you see the bitterness and the resentfulness coming out. And in this point, um, I want to dig a little deeper in, into what becomes of Job's mindset. And we're going to kind of read through quite a bit of chapter 10 because it really gives us some insight into Job's mindset. Um, and really throughout chapter 10, when Job is speaking, he is asking God three main questions. And I, I wanted to bring this up, if nothing more, than to just, I just love how real the Bible is. There's no sugarcoating. I mean, it is as real as it gets. And, and, and the words of Job are as real as it gets. And I think maybe in some way you can find uh, comfort that there is, you know, this book where these people from who, uh, however many years ago, thousands of years ago, are still going through and struggling with the same things that we go through today. And there's, there's, I feel like there's some comfort in that. And maybe as I read through some of chapter 10, you can maybe relate to it, or maybe you've asked yourself or God similar questions, or you've had similar feelings to what Job is going through. And again, this is as real as it gets but we're just going to get into it. So chapter 10, we're gonna, let's start off with the first three verses. And in these three verses, Job is, is basically asking God, why are you against me? He says, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Job is saying some pretty bold stuff to God, is he not? Um, <laughs> and, and, and through this, you know, he's asking, why are you against me? But as I said in the last point, Job's friends saw him as the defense in this criminal trial. But Job sees it differently. He sees himself really as the plaintiff in kind of this civil trial where God and God's policies are on the stand. And he's asking God to explain and defend himself. And I mean, we see it right here. Tell me. What charges have you against me, God? And through this, I mean, he's asking God, like, you know, what in the world are you doing? Why is this happening? What kind of God are you? What in the world is going on? Uh, let's jump to verses 8 and 9, and then I'm going to read verses 12 through 16. He said, he, and he's asking here, why did you even create me? Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you turn and destroy me. Remember that you fashioned me like clay, and will you turn me to dust again? Verse 12, you have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart, I know that this was your purpose. And without uh, getting into, you know, all the verses and, and, and trying to just, you know, summarize, what's happening here is, God, Job is basically saying, God, you were this wonderful creator, but not now. He's saying, I realize why you did all this. You gave the appearance of this loving creator, but you hid in your heart your cruel intentions that are now being worked out in my life. All that stuff before was just an act. Your true character has been revealed, and I see you for who you really are. He's saying this to God. I mean, <laughs> woof. Um, but again, it's, it's just, I, 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 you have to appreciate the realness because it's like whatever your prayer life looks like, however, you know, 
Maybe you've really given it to God at times in your life. I mean, Job certainly did. I don't think you need to feel ashamed about it. I think God can handle it. I think he can take it. Verse 14, Job says, If I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. If I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace and look upon my affliction. And were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. I mean, he's really calling out God's character, his judgment, all sorts of things. He's saying, if I sin, you won't even forgive me. He's like, if I am, if I am guilty, okay, I understand, I deserve the punishment. Uh, but, uh, but if I am righteous, and in one of the translations it says, and although righteous, he's again proclaiming his innocence. He's like, I still can't raise my head. Um, He's saying it doesn't even matter that I am innocent. He lowers his head in shame because keeping your head up high is a, you know, a symbol of, of dignity, right? But he lowers his head in shame. And, and think about Job, anybody who sees him, remember he's covered in all these boils and sickness and stuff like that. Anybody who sees him is just going to say, oh, there's a guilty sinner who's being punished. There's a guy who's committed terrible things and God's punishing him. And Job's saying, no, but I'm innocent. But anybody who looks at me, you know, and he's filled with shame. And I, I just like the imagery in verse 16. He talks about, you know, the, the lion. And I, like, I can't help but, like, think of, like, a gazelle in a field. Like, you know, they got their head down eating the grass, and the lion's creeping up on it. And as soon as the gazelle, like, hears the lion, it lifts its head up, and that's right when the lion pounces, right? Because they know it's been spotted. And, God, and Job's saying, yeah, God, you're kind of like that. Um, you're just going to hunt me down again and, and crush me with no hope of escape. I mean, wow. Um, the final question we can, we can pull out of verses 18 through 22, and this is just the kind of the end of it. He, he says, God, why don't you just kill me? Um, verse 18 says, why did you bring me forth from the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me, and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not the days of my life few? Let me alone that I may find a little comfort before I go never to return to the land of gloom and deep darkness, the land of gloom and chaos where light is darkness. Uh, it's, you know, it's pretty obvious here that Job is severely depressed and just wants to die. He's had all he can handle and just is, you know, just ready to, for it to end. Um, and and the, the verbiage here, the land of gloom and chaos, without getting into it too much, this is this is basically like anti-creation language. And what I mean by that is this. It, when you read Genesis 1, you, there's this theme of order and chaos, that God has built a universe of order, and he, he created the order out of all the, the crazy chaos, right? And, and what Job is basically claiming that, God, you're the opposite of the God of order. You've brought disorder into my life. And he's pretty much saying, God, you're the exact opposite of everything that I thought you were. Um, again, pretty harsh words. But let's come back to the three claims, okay? So we know that the friends, they believed in the first two claims, and they questioned Job's innocence. If I had that slide up there, you could put that up there. I think I do. There we go. Now, according to Job, he believes in his innocence. Obviously, he proclaims that. And he also, too, believes that God is running the world according to the retribution principle. So what Job starts doing is he starts questioning the first premise, God, are you really this just and loving God? Are you really who you say you are? What kind of God is this? What in the world are you doing? Um, and here's the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, if we, if we stay here, if we dwell in the cynical, bitter resentfulness, you're just going to contribute more to the pain and suffering in the world. And now, yeah, you may not, you know, commit, you know, a, a horrible act against somebody else, but the pain and suffering will be enough even just in your own life. You become this old, bitter, resentful person and somebody that your friends and family don't even recognize anymore because you've just let the bitterness consume you. Um, and I love what Mark said this past Sunday. He said, pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. And you have, uh, you have to choose not to stay here and not to dwell in the bitterness. Okay, those are the first three. Let's, uh, we, we, we got a little dark, a little depressing, so let's, <laughs> let's lighten up the mood a little bit here and go to number four. Okay, um, 
Number four, the fourth way we could respond is we need to trust in God's wisdom. And this is God's response. Um, here's, here's the fact, at least this is what I believe. No amount of evidence or rational argument, no amount of, you know, kind of the intellectual stuff that I kind of started off this teaching with is, is really going to be the thing that gets you through when you are in the midst of it, when you are suffering and you are hurting and you are broken. Um, that stuff is great and it has its place and it is helpful, but the reality is the only thing that is going to get you through is a covenant relationship with a God and a unwavering trust in Him. And um, when you know and you are your conviction is that God loves you, and you know how much he loves you, that's when you can trust him. See, all that, as I said, stuff before, the, the rational arguments, the evidence, whatever, whatever, eventually our, our knowledge and our understanding will reach its end. And it, everybody, it reaches its end with everybody. We only know so much, and we only will know so much. And when our knowledge fails and comes to an end, that's where the trust and the faith have to take over. And that is what is really going to get you through the pain and suffering in your life. Um, but let's look, at, um, let's look at God's wisdom. So, chapter 38 is quite the chapter. Um, God finally shows up. Job, in all of his ranting and raving for however many chapters, finally gets God to show up in chapter 38. And God shows up and... Chapter 38, verse number 2, is probably my favorite verse in the entire book. And, and let's, let's just read it, right? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Verse number 2, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Oh, man. I mean, <laughs> buckle your seatbelts. The big guy has just shown up, and things are going to get interesting. Okay, so what ends up happening is, you know, through, through chapter 38 and 39, God asked Job just a series of, of questions, and, and through these questions, we're kind of almost taken on this, like, tour throughout the earth and the cosmos, and God asks him all these just mind-blowing questions of, you know, we're, we're kind of privy to just the, the omniscience and the universal perspective that God has, and um, we, we just, we see just the most, like, complex and intricate aspects of creation through these questions that, that God asked Job. And, and we, under, we can see through all that that everything in all of creation God is watching over and governing and maintaining and is in complete control of. And, you know, he starts out here kind of on the big scale. You know, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, right? I mean, it's like, well, geez, I mean, how do, how do I answer that question? I obviously can't. <laughs> But then he gets into like the more just like this crazy stuff. He starts asking him about like the flight patterns of eagles and the birthing cycle of mountain goats. I mean, just like the most wild stuff. <laughs> Seriously, it's in there, okay? And just the most wild stuff that you know Job hasn't even begun to consider. I mean, there's just no possible way he has any clue. And, and I mean, the reality is, is neither do we. We don't, we don't know. The, the answer to that is simply, I, you know, I, I don't know, God. I have no idea. Um, and we, you know, we, we, see, we see Job respond, but, but let me just say this. When, when we understand that God is watching over and maintaining every single aspect of all of creation, whatever reasons he has for allowing Job's suffering, neglect can't be one of them. He has not neglected him. And Job's response in chapter 40 just, you know, sums it up. Then Job answered the Lord, and see, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and will not answer twice, but will proceed no further. And obviously, we're like Job. This is what, what can we say? Um, furthermore, let's go into a little bit more of, of God's response. So we're going to jump to chapter 40. And I want to read verses 9 through 14 because there's another pretty big point that God makes in his response. And, and he, he basically issues a challenge to Job. And so let's read the verse, and then we'll kind of unpack it. And he, this is God speaking to Job. Have you an arm like God? And can you, uh, and can you, let's see, did I write that down right? 
And can you thunder with a voice like his? Deck yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on all who are proud and abase them. Look on all who are proud and bring them low. Tread down on the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can give you victory. So what God is basically doing here is saying, you know, all right, Job, you think you can do it better than me? Fine. Run the world according to, strictly according to the retribution principle. Give people what they deserve since you think that this is how things ought to be run. And now let's go back once again to the three claims. So we have questioned Job's innocence, but we know that Job is innocent. The author tells us and God tells us that he is innocent. We know God is just and good, so maybe the problem lies in point number two, the retribution principle. Um, really, the entire book is more or less a critique on this principle and this theology, that it turns out it's not that simple. It's not that clear cut. It's not that black and white. It's more than just you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad. Um, so we come back to, the, again, that kind of question, does Job fear God for nothing? If God did run things according to the retribution principle and only the retribution principle, guess what? We would manipulate the system. Right. Think about it. Oh, I'm, you know, I, I really would like to get this new promotion at work. So, you know, I'm going to make sure uh, my church attendance record is really great this month. And I'm going to give some money in the offering and maybe give a little extra money to charity. And I'm going to pray and read my Bible every day because I know what I want. But of course we would do that, right? I mean, of course we would, 100%. We would manipulate the system to just get what we wanted to get out of it, right? And, and if Job took God up on the task of, fine, Job, you think you can do better, you know, have at it. Um, Job would obviously find the task impossible. Um, Job doesn't really know what he's asking for, that for God to use the strict principle of retribution to run things, to reward every good deed and punish every bad deed. And see... The retribution principle, it makes sense to us. We can wrap our minds around it. It seems fair. It's easy to understand. Again, you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Um, and it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of amazing to me, like, how often we just sort of default back to that position, right? Like, if you're going through something, you just, you know, you cry out, why, God, why is this happening? I don't deserve this. I'm not a bad person. Why aren't those evil, wicked people out there suffering? Why am I going through this? I'm a good person. I mean, we just, yeah, you just kind of default back to that position all the time. Um, but in reality, if, again, God ran things this way, um, this would produce a world where nobody would have a chance for trial and error. Nobody would be able to grow and change. The retribution principle would produce a world without any human beings. We would all be dead uh, if we just simply got what we deserved. Uh, we'd all be dead or at least seriously injured, okay? Um, I mean, it wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't be good if people just got what they deserved all the time. Um, see, Job wants to conquer and subdue evil, but he doesn't maybe fully realize the cost to do it. Um, for, only, for only by death can ultimately death itself and the pain and evil and suffering be destroyed. For only by death can death itself be destroyed. And guess what? It has been. And that takes us to point number five, and that is we have got to look to Jesus. Uh, and I just put the author's response here um, because there, Jesus is in the book of Job, everybody. You may not see him by name, but I promise you he is there. And I mean, I couldn't do an entire teaching without bringing it back to Jesus. So here we go. Number five, we got to look to Jesus. Chapter number nine, verse 33. Here's where we get our first kind of hint of Jesus. Job says this, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, if only. Uh, let's jump to the New Testament. First Timothy chapter five or excuse me, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, for there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He is the mediator. Um, so as I, as I mentioned earlier, um, 
if you came here tonight expecting an, uh, a very clean-cut answer of why do bad things happen to good people or, or why does God allow evil and suffering in the world, I don't know why. And the reality is I will never know why and nobody ever will. And we will sit here and debate it and argue it till forever, but we don't know. But I do know a few reasons why not. And at first, it, it, why not? It's not because God is punishing you. It's not because he has neglected you. And it isn't because he doesn't love you. Because what we see in Jesus is our Savior, he didn't shy away from and avoid the pain and suffering in the world. He plunged himself into it and experienced it himself. And he understands. Uh, chapter 14 does something that really kind of blew my mind, and I'm going to read a few verses from chapter 14 in a minute. It actually alludes to resurrection. And I, I'll be honest, I, I probably, I, I was kind of reading part of the commentary as I was going through and studying this book, and I, I probably would have missed it um, if I hadn't been reading that, but it just blew my mind, and so I, I had to give it to you guys. So let's read Job 14, verses 13 through 17. And this is what it says. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. Now, to just put it simply, Sheol is, is basically how the Israelites understood death. That was kind of the realm of the dead, where if you died, that's where you went to. So you kind of just understand Sheol as, as death. Uh, that, so that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. So this is Job talking to God, okay? If mortals die, will they live again? All the days of my service, I would wait until my release should come. My release from death. And he's talking about resurrection. He says, you would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. And 16 and 17, man, just is kind of the gut punch. For then you would not number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. And ladies and gentlemen, verse 17, that is what Jesus has done for us when he died on the cross. And I just love, I love that it, it, it says cover over. And um, if, if you were here and you heard my, my dad's message on the Ark of the Covenant, you will know that the covering over the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat which represents Jesus and grace, and it covers over death, which is with the Ten Commandments and the law, and the law brought death, and that's what Jesus does. He covers over our iniquities, seals up the transgressions in a bag, throws them away to never be remembered again. I mean, there it is. There's Jesus all the way back in the book of Job. And, G and, and so Jesus is the true and better Job. He is the truly innocent sufferer who died in our place and gave us the free gift of grace. Thank you, Lord. Um, so let me wrap up with just a couple more things. I'm going to give you one more verse and then we will conclude. So with all that being said, um, we kind of started off with, okay, why does God allow bad things to happen? But maybe in studying the book of Job, we realize that asking why is the wrong question. Maybe, uh, well, as I've already said, Job doesn't give us the answer to why, and I don't even think really the Bible does. And if that's the case, maybe we need to ask a different question. So what question should we ask? Well, let's go to the book of John, chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. So this is what it says. Um, walking down the street, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned? Now, don't put verse 3 up yet until I call for it. Hang on. Okay, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? Do you guys see it? The retribution principle right there, right in the New Testament from the disciples, right? This guy has an affliction. Somebody sinned. Who sinned? What's going on? Who's to blame? And I think even in that question, there's kind of another question because you can, maybe the disciples are kind of thinking, well, is it fair that if his parents sinned, this guy should have to suffer for the sin of his parents? And if he was, but if he was born this way, he didn't even actually get the chance to do an act of sin and he's still being punished. You know, what's, what's going on, right? 
All right, hit me with verse number three, Jesus' response. Here we go. Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. Oh, boy. Yep. See, we think we know the questions, right? We think we know the questions we want, but, yeah, we, I don't think we do. Um, <laughs> you're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We look to the past, we want to know why, we want the explanation, and I think the reality is, is even if we did know why, I don't think we would like the answer, I don't think it would help us, I mean, you know, it's just, what are you going to do? But when we look to the future, and if I could just add, look ahead for what God can do, right, look to the future, this speaks to purpose. What is the purpose out of the pain? Um, so I will conclude with this. The problem of pain is better formed, not as a question of why, why does God allow bad things to happen and evil and suffering, but as a question of what. What are you going to do about it? The problem of pain is less a problem to be solved and more so a reality that requires action. I don't know why, but I do know what. And all I can say is I'm going to trust in God's wisdom and I'm going to look to Jesus and I just know that in the end, even death itself has been defeated. And that is all I got for you, everybody. That's all I got. So, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, that was, man, I just had a blast studying the book of Job. I just, there's just so much there. I mean, chapter 42, when you get to the last chapter, just, I didn't have time to go into it. It just kind of blows my mind because God, you know, tells all the friends, hey, you spoke wrongly of me, but it turns out Job has spoken right, which just blows my mind because you read chapter 10 and Job's saying all this crazy stuff and God's like, oh yeah, he, he spoke rightly of me. And that, I mean, that just kind of blows my mind. And, and then, you know, Job gets all, gets all the, the stuff back and it's not because of anything he did. And it, it's just interesting because, you know, when we're going through the bad stuff, we want to know why, what did I do to deserve this? But nobody ever thinks to ask that question when you actually get the blessings, because it's like you didn't actually earn and deserve the blessings either. It's just freely given. So, um, yeah, um, I, I kind of ended with talking about purpose, and I think it really kind of pairs well with Mark's teach message this past Sunday where he, you know, talks about don't wasting your, not wasting your pain and, and just finding the purpose in there. So, uh, yeah, that's all I got. But thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, that's all I got. I guess you are officially dismissed. Uh, thank you for showing up, and we will see you Sunday. All right. Cool.